You're listening to Liberty Buzzard with Dustin Hammett and Thomas Umstead Jr. Episode 47. I'm Dustin Hammett. I'm Thomas Umstead Jr. Welcome to Liberty Buzzard, the podcast for inquisitive minds. In this episode, we're going to discuss progressive cities, affordable housing, the midterm election, and all of that mess. But first, we have a special guest that we'd like to introduce. That's right. First, we have a special guest, and that special guest is my very own baby. Uh, I am not ashamed of my baby. I'm happy to share my baby with all of you. And it's Mercy Gale, which I'm going to be handed here. We'll get her on live Facebook Live for the very first time ever on live video. She's very excited, and she totally woke up for this. I don't know if you can see her here, but this is my daughter she is almost uh she she is three weeks old almost four weeks old four weeks old on monday which is very exciting so anyway you can say hi mercy she might wake up a little bit but she is what we call uh she has a milk coma right now she has just had a very full dinner and is going to be falling asleep i imagine but anyway this is my little baby girl and uh anyway now let's talk about affordable housing You know, Thomas, I think this is the uh, 21st century version of the annoying wallet pictures for parents. <laughs> when you meet a stranger at the bus stop and they're like, hey, you want to see my kids? Not really, but I'm going to smile and say yes. My, my parents have been bragging about this is their first grandkid. Uh, they are loading up baby photos on their phones and they are like every stranger they find, they'll flip through all of the photos on their phones. And so I'm afraid Liberty is getting to be a quite famous baby in the circles my parents go in. She's already a celebrity. Put the baby in in front of everyone. Uh, we're getting some comments. So, oh, just by the way, if you leave a comment, we'd love to put your comment up on the screen. We have the technology to do that. So, William, thank you for the comment saying she is so cute. Uh, as we talk about actual politics as we get into the episode, do feel free to chime in and uh, we will put your comment on screen. We might respond to it. So you can be a part of the conversation. So, Dustin, tell us about why... Uh, San Francisco's election is actually the most interesting election of the year, even though no one is talking about it. Oh, Thomas, Thomas, Thomas. So uh, obviously the midterm elections happened. I, unless you're living under a rock, I think you you know about this. And there was a lot of uh, a lot of this, a lot about that, about Democrats and Republicans and and who won and who didn't win. But was interesting to me, Thomas, especially. Since I don't live in Austin, I won't live in Austin, but you live in Austin, was this article that I read about San Francisco. Um, so the, this is from Reason.com. San Francisco just passed the largest tax increase in city history. And the byline is, anybody's guess if it's legal. Bum, bum, bum. So in San Francisco, we had uh, Proposition C. Uh, which was overwhelmingly voted in favor by uh, by the residents of San Francisco. Let's go for the details here. Raise an estimated $300 million a year for housing, mental health treatment, and other services for the city's 7,500 homeless residents through a hike in the city's business gross receipts tax. That's gross receipts, folks. What does that mean if you're not in the business world? What that means is if you make... $7 million, that means that your gross receipts are going to be taxed on that $7 million. Now, let's say that you made $7 million. Unfortunately, you spent $8 million. That means that your net receipts are actually negative $1 million. It doesn't matter, according to San Francisco. You're still going to pay taxes on $7 million. 
$1,000. That's my example, of course. And uh, the big thing to to know here about this uh, Proposition C for San Francisco is it's going to be uh, paid by primarily by, let's see, businesses that make... I think it was over 20 million or something like that. That's just kind of a guess. I can't I can't find the exact number. But larger earning businesses. So it's it's going to be bore by a substantially small number of businesses out there which of course us being business people Thomas and constitutionalist we believe that is bad because uh taxes are bad for business and growth. The last thing I'll say Thomas before I turn it over to you is uh the the thing about this that really stood out to me was that according to a GAO study, that's uh, the Office of, Office of Government Accountability, a government-subsidized affordable housing project in San Francisco area, I believe, cost $700,000 to build one unit. One unit. $700,000 to build. So uh, I'm not. I'm just doing the math in my head. So they're going to get like five units out of this with that 300 million dollar bond. I mean, <laughs> with all the with all the other stuff that you got to spend it on too. But Thomas, I want to know about this because all of you fellow Austinites, guess what? You overwhelmingly both also voted for Proposition A, which let me get the dollar amount here, a 925 million dollar bond package that the Austin City Council put together. Uh, let's see. $100 million going toward buying land for affordable housing development, $94 million going toward housing that's specifically targeted to renters and providing housing for homeless, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Thomas, oh, tell me what you think. Okay, there's so many problems. There's problems with every aspect of this. The only thing that's not broken about this is the hope the desire of the San Francisco government to help the poor. And that I can applaud. The problem is, is that nothing about this is going to help the poor. So this is not the first time San Francisco has passed this kind of law where they're raising taxes to give money to homeless people. They do this all the time. And guess which is like the worst city in the country to try to be home, uh, to be poor in San Francisco. Because of the way they're raising the funds, they're raising taxes, which discourages people from running low profit businesses. So the kinds of businesses that are by, you know, that employ poor people and sell things to poor people tend to be lower margin businesses, right? Because you have selling things at low products. Those are the businesses that get hammered the most. If you are selling Rolex watches and you have to pay a slightly higher percentage of your money, you've got such high margins that you can survive that. But if you're running a dollar general, if you're running a convenience store that's trying to sell food in a poor part of town, not that there are poor parts of town in San Francisco anymore, but let's say you were trying to, suddenly you may have gone from profitable to unprofitable and the people who had jobs now don't have jobs. And and the way that they're collecting the money on the gross is just worst because it makes businesses, let's say that we're breaking even, so your business was making $20 million and spending $20 million. It was creating all these jobs and helping all these people with the product or service they're making. Now they went from being a break-even business to a business losing money, which means they'll have to close or move away. Both of which cause all of the people who had those jobs to lose their jobs, thus hurting the poor. <laughs> so the way that they're raising the money is hurting the poor, but also 
the way to have affordable housing isn't through these government programs. The, the cities that do these government programs don't fix their affordable housing problem. If you want to see a city that has affordable housing, there's a great beacon, a city shining on a hill that is great for poor people and attractive to rich people. And it is the glorious city of Houston, Texas, a city that is loved by no one and yet adored by all of the people who live there. Uh, here we go. I don't know why you live in Austin. I don't know why you haven't moved to Houston yet, Thomas. <laughs> so the people who live in Houston love to hate on Houston and people who don't live in Houston love to hate on Houston. But the people who actually live there don't want to leave or they talk about it, but never get around to doing it because the quality of their life is higher in Houston than it can be in almost any other town. And that's it regardless of the amount of money that they make. Why? Because they have freedom. They have the freedom to do what they want with their house. If they want to build a house in their backyard and provide affordable housing for their kids, they have the freedom to do that. There's no zoning laws that keep them from doing that, at least from my understanding in most parts of Houston. Whereas San Francisco has some of the most restrictive zoning laws. Some of those laws are... I would say makes sense, right? The laws that you can't use poor quality concrete because we're going to have a big earthquake and we don't want everyone in your building to die because you use cheap concrete. All right, I'll give you that. Some quality building standards make sense, but that is not the motivation. The motivation is people want their housing values to go up. Uh, it was fascinating to listen to the mayor's debate because they're like, oh, well, we want you know to improve our housing values, right? If you're a homeowner, you want the value of your house to go up, but you also want affordable housing, which is code for housing values going down. And so no one actually wants housing values to go down, which means that because the people who own houses, the ones who vote, and they're the ones who donate. So when they say they want affordable housing, they don't. What they do want to do is make noise and action and effort, but they don't actually want to pull down the cost of houses. They don't want your house to be worth less because there's so much more supply. So it all comes down to supply and demand. And that's why they're spending $700,000 a unit for this quote-unquote affordable housing in San Francisco because they're not actually wanting to increase the supply in a, in a way that causes the value of everyone's houses to go down because that is a non-starter. So this is not going to work. I feel bad for those businesses in San Francisco, but I will say... While Austin raised some money, uh, we didn't raise any way or the kind of money San Francisco did. We're still a much more affordable place and we have just as good coffee. And I think you can even get avocado toast somewhere in Austin. So if you want to move your business to Austin, we are happy to have you. And you'll be around lots of other Californians because this is not the first time they've done something crazy like this. And I imagine it won't be the last because it's not going to work. So you're like, oh, well, we need to spend more money. We need more taxes because, you know, all of those taxes that we raised uh, didn't work. So just because it didn't work doesn't mean more of it won't work more, uh, won't fail even bigger. So let's let's talk about this for a second, Thomas, because um, in especially here in Austin, where you have an incredible influx of people from outside the state, almost entirely from California. Uh, Austin, for some reason, is a destination place for people from California who are overwhelmed by their property values, by their taxes, et cetera, et cetera to come and live and still get a little taste of California because it's 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 very similar. Austin's a very similar city and feel and style uh, to California. It It's a way for them to come over here and feel like they're in California, but not actually be in California. One of our native Texans' biggest concerns is they're coming over here because they want it to feel like California, but not be California. But at the same time, they vote like it's California and they want to change it to California. 
It's like a plague of locusts that once they eat through all of the, you know, every green thing uh, from the place they come from, they have to go find more green things somewhere else to go nibble away on. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, which, of course, is what exactly we don't want. You're coming over here because of a certain way of living and then you're voting to change it. Uh, My case in point there, Thomas, I don't know if you looked at the election map, but the election map from this most recent election was shocking to me. And I'll tell you why. Williamson County, which for those of you who are are listening from out of state uh, and don't know anything about the central Texas area, Austin belongs in Travis County. Williamson County is the neighborhood just north of that. And Williamson County, this last election, turned from the darkest of dark red to blue lines, which means lean Democratic in most of the election map, which shocked me. It shocked me because Williamson County has been steadfast, deep, dark red conservative for as long as anybody can remember. Before that, it was yellow dog Democrat. And yeah. In the year 2000, I remember this, and I assume that it's true, Williamson County voted for Bush over Gore more than any other county. So Travis County was one of the only counties in Texas to vote for Gore over Bush. They voted against the hometown guy because that's how Democratic Austin is. But Williamson County was the exact opposite of that. And you're about to blame Californians for why Williamson County is turning blue. And I'm actually going to blame Republicans in Williamson County for why Williamson County is not as turned blue. Oh, bring it, Thomas, bring it. And the reason why Williamson County has turned blue is because the Republicans in Williamson County have not created enough Republican jobs in Williamson County. So all of the jobs being created in Williamson County, which is why people are moving there. People don't move to Williamson County for the view. They don't move there for the lake, right? They, they move there for economic reasons. That's the primary drive of Williamson County. I think Williamson County is beautiful, but I don't feel like it's more beautiful than Bell County. I don't feel like it's more beautiful than Bear County, right? There are a lot of beautiful counties in Texas. Williamson County, you know, they have a big round rock. It's nice, but it's n- nothing to write home about, right? The reason people move there is for economic reasons and the kinds of businesses that have been creating jobs in Williamson County are not like your blue collar Republican jobs, uh, you know, manufacturing and the, you know, the, the quarry there probably has not created hardly any new jobs. No, it's jobs at Dell, it's jobs at Intel, it's jobs at AMD, the kinds of jobs that are primarily filled with people who vote for Democrats. So the Williamson County people are very happy for the economic growth, but the economic growth has not been coming for, uh, by people who are Republicans creating jobs for people who are Republicans. I'm not talking about discrimination. I'm talking about the kinds of jobs that Republicans do. Uh, And Republicans in general are not drawn to high-tech jobs. And so if that's all you're creating is high-tech jobs, you're going to change the demographics of your county. Well, I think it's an interesting proposition because you say you're blaming Republicans for not creating enough Republican jobs, but is it a political party that creates jobs? Or the political party creates the environment. No, it's the actual people. I'm talking about the actual Republicans. If you're a millionaire Republican in Williamson County, how many jobs have you personally created in the last 10 years? No, not me personally. No. 
you had the power to, you could have, but you probably, you probably didn't. You may have created, you may have hired a few people here and there, but you weren't creating like, you didn't hire another 10,000 people. Who's hiring another 10,000 people? AMD, Intel, Dell, those kinds of companies. And that's why. So I'm not blaming the party, I'm bl- <laughs> which I realize is not going to sell. And, and y'all are welcome to leave ne- negative comments here on Facebook. We may even throw them up and, and let everyone see what you have to say. Put them up on the screen. But uh, I, I realize this is not a popular position. But the reality is, is that there's certain kinds of jobs attract certain kinds of people. And if you want your county to maintain your demographics in terms of voting, you've got to economically be willing to keep up. And I will say these uh, tech workers, they, like the kinds in San Francisco, they are not bothered by big government. Uh, it doesn't bother them. I, I, it used to. 20 years ago, tech people used to be very libertarian and being a cowboy was seen as a compliment in the 90s amongst nerds. Uh, That is no longer uh, a compliment. The ninjas have replaced the cowboys and the gurus replaced the ninjas and who knows what they're called nowadays. But uh, I I think that um, this trend is is not going to be stopped. I think as Austin gets bigger, as Austin creates more Austin type jobs and attracts more people to quote unquote Austin while simultaneously refusing to allow new housing to be built. People are going to go to Williamson County where they are able to still build a house and they're going to bring their Austin with them. Uh, So this whole uh, refusing to allow people to put their own land to their own use and build their own houses in in Travis County is now hurting Williamson County in the sense of they're losing their political voice. So uh, we just had a comment uh, from our producer, William. First of all, he fact checked me and he corrected me. Thank you, William. Uh, yes, the all the, the total amount of Austin bonds was about nine hundred twenty-five million dollars, just under a billion dollars. The one for affordable housing was just at uh, two hundred fifty million dollars. So thank you for that fact check, William. And then he also threw this in my face. Uh, he threw me a Dallas News article that says Native Texans voted for Native Texan Beto O'Rourke, comma transplants went for Ted Cruz exit poll show. So I'm I'm scanning through. So this is a CNN exit poll. Go ahead. So so real quick, I, I'm going to, because I can tell you exactly what's going on. Yes, this is true on a statewide basis. Texas is drawing lots of people to Texas. And the kinds of people who move to Texas are people who are wanting to get away from somewhere liberal and wanting to be around conservatives like them. So if you're moving to Waco, if you're moving to Fort Worth, you're voting for Cruz. But if you were to look at those numbers specifically for Austin and specifically for uh, Round Rock and like the other Williamson County counties, I think those numbers would actually be different. So Austin is almost always the opposite of Texas in terms of general trends. And the kind of person who's moving to Austin and not to Texas, and they'll often say it that way. Somebody from California is like, I'm moving to Austin. And they're like, Texas. They say it really quietly, almost like they're embarrassed of the fact that Austin just happens to be uh, located in the Republic of Texas. Uh, So uh, I totally agree with William's point uh, that in general, I think the transplants are actually turning Texas red or potentially, uh, but I don't think the point holds for the little red or sorry, the little blue dot in the middle of the state. I don't have any proof for this. This is all anecdotal. This is all feeling. I have to go dig for some proof. I understand his, his, the, the point in the article and I understand why he sent it. However, what I see having been a resident of Williamson County for a, a majority of my life now is uh, we had uh, a core group of people here in Williamson County that, I mean, we, people from Georgetown where I live, we're all from Georgetown. And you know, you, you kind of moved away from Georgetown, and then you kind of moved back. So it was a very small town feel. The people in Georgetown were the people from Georgetown. You didn't have a lot of outer townies. 
That's changed. The dynamic of our population has forever and will forever be changed as a result of several decisions over the past few decades. And there are more transplants here in Williamson County. And Austin's also pushed up. Uh, there's the, 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 the borders of Austin have pushed past Williamson County. And Austin is now parceling Williamson County too, which has forever and will forever in the future alter the political landscape of Williamson County. So, you know, we do like to bash on Californians. And I will say that the influx of Californians, be- and some of them are my friends, believe it or not, and some of them are are, are dyed in the world Republicans. You're not a Californianist. You have some of your best friends are from California. <laughs> oh, I have some very good friends from California, and I don't hate them. But yes, it, it does get frustrating when we have, of course, we always cling to the way things were. We want it to stay that way. And I'm not dumb enough to know that things are always dynamic and things are always going to change. However, it's still frustrating. Because uh, my political philosophy says you create the environment for business, a business-friendly environment, and they're going to come. You build it, they're going to come, right? And all of a sudden, not only do you build it and they come, but they build it and they come and they want to change things to the way they were, where they came from, which is not working out so great for them. So, you know, maybe, William, throw throw me some articles out there that proving me wrong. Please show me I'm wrong. We have another comment from William that I want to throw up on the screen. He says, what if Republicans in Texas just don't like Trump so they don't vote for Republicans anymore? And I will say, I think there may be some validity to this. I I know a lot of Texas Republicans are big fans of Trump, but Texans in general, there's two places in the world we don't like. California and the other place we don't like is New York, specifically New York City. And I, I will say, historically, New York City has been the number one villain of our country music. Your city lights may appeal to you, but moonlight suits me fine. Right? That's the line from the te- from the old Texas songs, from the olden days. And Trump is not just from New York City. He is New York City. Like, he embodies the kind of brashness, the kind of rudeness, the kind of, you know, say it like it is kind of New York City where it's it's um, shooting straight without being friendly, right? So Texas, we appreciate straight shooting, but we also appreciate friendliness. Whereas New York City, that is not a value of the city. If you were to like list values in New York City, it'd be wealth and, you know, straight talking and toughness. Friendliness is not in there. New York City, people are not known for being friendly. Nothing against people from New York City. And I could see why somebody who's quintessentially New York really struggles to find the kind of resonance in Texas that he finds in a place like Florida, right? Florida is basically like an extension of New York City culturally in many ways. And and Trump seems to do really well there. He's adopted it as his second home. He almost never comes to Texas. And when he does, he doesn't, I don't feel like he gets the kind of Texas-sized response that you would think given his party affiliation. And, and you know, there is a chilling effect. I was at a political event actually uh, a few weeks ago. And it's interesting because a Trump person spoke. Bum, bum, bum. And this was at a, uh, you know, a political, political event that wasn't particularly attached with national politics. And having a Trump person from the White House was kind of like, ooh, you know, we're elevating our status, which was exciting. But at the same time, it was fascinating watching the applause and the Trump person was getting half the applause of the local person who spoke after. And there were whole tables of people where no one was clapping. <laughs> it was like, that's they may now they may have gone out and vote, voted for him, but they aren't excited by him. And uh, I think, William, this theory may be a valid theory uh, where, you know, you have to have something exciting at the top of the ticket. And uh, Beto is very exciting as a person. He seemed very Texan. 
and very honest and for, forthright, very kind. Like he was able to resonate with those Texas values. And, and I loved how his commercials were just him talking to the camera about some issue of policy. Very much often at the end, it'd be like, man, I like you. I hate your ideas, but I like you. <laughs> so like, I get it. He's charismatic. He had many yard signs. He had, man, if, if yard signs could vote, Beta would have won, <laughs> but yard sides don't vote. Yeah, well, yeah, I was just going to comment. I was, I was just scroll as you were talking. I was scrolling through this uh, little survey here. First of all, I wanted to end with a question for you, Thomas. What do you think of these exit polls? Because obviously, the the whole idea of polling, which has been very scientific and somewhat accurate for a long time, took a shellacking in the 2016 election. Um. And I'm wondering if the communication landscape in the United States of America is changing and if the pollsters have yet to catch up. Because I could tell watching the election results pour in on uh, Tuesday night that they were still very tentative in their uh, in their willingness to call an election. They're still very tentative. And I'm looking at this polling here. And what I see is 2,431 respondents. And... I'm guessing the pollsters out there, the statisticians say that's a pretty good sample size and that's a representative sample size. But I guess my question is, is that sample size, how are they getting these people? And I'm going to have to dig down to this. How are they getting these people? Are they calling them up? Who are they talking to? So how long have you lived in Texas? You know, the point that William brought up. O'Rourke, 51% uh, were born in Texas. or 58% of the people born in Texas, 51% of them voted for O'Rourke. 48% of them voted for Cruz. But how many of those 2,431 respondents were in the rural counties? Because that was where Cruz really came alive. Because if you were watching the elections live, Beto was ahead almost the entire night until those rural counties where the you know the, the true native Texans are, because people really don't move there. People move to Austin, people move to Dallas, people move to Houston, some people move to San Antonio. People don't move to San Saba County. People don't move to Amarillo. And when they started counting those counties, that is when Cruz overtook the race. And that's when he was called eventually. What, what do you think about all that? Yes. Yeah, so let me explain exit polls really quickly and explain what they're used for and what they shouldn't be used for. Uh, so in 2000, the big mistake was that exit polls were used to call an election. And I agree with Bush's uh, fixer. I, f- I forget his name. Carl Rove. Carl Rove. Carl Rove believes that exit polls should not be released until the day after the election because the purpose of an exit poll and an exit poll is conducted. Somebody's walking out of the polling place and a pollster comes up to them with a clipboard and says, hi, I'm I'm a pollster. I'm doing an exit poll. Would you be willing to tell me who you voted for? And why did you vote for them? And then they get some demographic information. And the purpose of that exit poll is to figure out why did we win or why did we lose? That's why exit polls are done. And when they're done to try to predict who wins the election, uh, that's where you can get into trouble, especially for the one we just had. So when a poll is conducted, they have this group defined as likely voters. And the reason often that polls often will have different numbers is that their universe of likely voters is different. And they're making a guess as to who is a likely voter and who is a not likely voter. And the part of the reason why they got Trump wrong was that this horde of voters, millions of voters, I think it was two or three million voters who'd never voted before, came out to vote for Trump. 
who I would call a, a group that I call the uh, uh, monster truck Republicans, <laughs> right? The, the different kind of Republican, right? They watch a different kind of entertainment. They're just a different kind of person. And they came out and they voted for Trump in overwhelming droves. And if you have millions of people who've never voted before, who, who are not a part of your likely voter constellation, it's really easy to discount them when you survey them because that's what you're supposed to do, right? Somebody who's not going to vote, you don't want them to count in the vote because if you don't vote, you don't count. <laughs> so even in a survey, you don't count. Uh, but what changed was he changed the universe a little bit. And I think that um, with this more recent midterm, we knew that we had millions more votes than we've had historically, right? This was a historic midterm. People participated in numbers they've never really participated before. It almost looked like a presidential election in terms of turnout uh, than an actual midterm. And because of that, everyone was like, well, gosh, you know, we usually use who voted last time to predict who voted this time. Obviously, there's all these millions of people who voted in this midterm who maybe have never voted in a midterm before. We're hesitant to use our early data to call this race. We want to see the numbers come in so that we don't look bad. Because with this new world of social media, the criticism of the media for getting it wrong is so high. You know, in 2000, when the media blew it, there were no blogs, there were no podcasts, there was no Facebook, there wasn't, you know, they, they were able to get away with it. The only people to criticize the media for blowing their calls was the media. And man, they had their kid gloves on. <laughs> they were really easy on themselves. Um, that They would never have gotten away with that uh, in today's day and age. So I, I'm not against exit polling. I think it is really useful, especially to figure out like what William is sharing. It's like, well, actually, people moving to Texas are pretty conservative. People who were born here, maybe were more resonating with, with Beto, especially where the exit poll was conducted. And I think that is really key. If you're doing all of your exit polling in the cities, it's going to give you a very different picture than the exit polling that you would do in the rural areas. But the other nice thing about exit polling is that you're able to combine the data that you get word of mouth from people walking out of the polling place with the data from that polling place. So you can say, all right, we know exactly how many people voted in this particular precinct and how many of them voted for Cruz and how many of them voted for Beto. And you're able to extrapolate and uh, torture the numbers in useful ways that give you a better picture of the universe. Nothing like uh, waterboarding some numbers for information. <laughs> it's, it's enhanced interrogation techniques of the numbers. As my dad often says, if you torture the numbers long enough, you can get them to confess to anything. Everybody's got their breaking point, Thomas. Everyone's got their breaking point. Uh, in general, average the polls is what I've been told. So don't take any one poll as gospel. Take all the polls and average them together. Uh, very rarely are they all wrong together, but they were with Brexit and they were to a lesser degree with Trump. Uh, so they, they make judgment calls and they try to determine um, if someone's a likely voter or not. And that determination causes them to adjust the numbers. And if you dig into the poll, you'll actually see 50, you know, 5% of the people we talked to said they were voting for Beto, but we brought that number down because we didn't think all of those people were likely voters. And these other people who were likely voters, you know, we, we adjusted the numbers. They often will explain that in the details of the poll, but no one ever reads that. They always just look at the margin of error <laughs> and uh, maybe even not even that. We want to know what you think, though. That's my explanation of exit polling and our coverage of the midterms. We may pick at the midterms a little bit more as as the news dies a little bit more and becomes a little bit more buzzard friendly. Uh, we don't like to pick at the news while it's too fresh. We like to give a little bit of perspective. Uh, but uh, we do appreciate you listening. I'm Thomas Umstead Jr. I'm Dustin Hammett. And you've been listening to Liberty Buzzard. 
This episode of Liberty Buzzard is brought to you by Tom Umstadt CPA. Tom has over 35 years of experience helping people like you pay only their fair share in taxes. Don't let the IRS stress you out. Get Tom and his team on your team at taxmantom.com. 